Our study today is entitled Ruth. And it's a story that's actually based on the book of Ruth. And Ruth is only four short chapters, four very short chapters, and it tells a beautiful story. Is anybody here familiar with the book, uh, the story of Ruth? If you know Ruth, could you put your hand up in the air? Just a few of us might be familiar, and that's good. That's why we're, that's why we're studying together, and we get to learn this together, okay? So we're going to be turning in our books, in our Bibles, to Ruth chapter 1. And our first section, we've break, broken up the study today into four sections, just as there are four chapters in the book of Ruth, and this is done on purpose. Our first section in the first chapter of Ruth is called Tragedy and Death. What a wonderful way to start a study. <laughs> Tragedy and Death. But as you know, any good story usually starts with some sort of tragedy and something, you know, some sort of problem that we need to face. I mean, would a story really be that interesting if there was no conflict or there was no problem to solve? You know, we're going on a journey today. And I love the way that the Bible tells these stories, how God tells these stories in his word. And it starts off with tragedy and death. So we're not going to be reading through. You could follow along if you'd like in your handouts or in the Bible so you could check against and see if I've got everything correct. Okay, we're going to start off with the setting. Now, we have been studying from the book of Judges recently, from Gideon and Samson. And we've talked about during the time of the Judges, this was a time where the, the Israelites were under oppression or they might experience some sort of famine. And then a judge would rise up and there would be a time of peace where they could enjoy their life. So this story of Ruth takes place in the time of Judges, okay? It's important to know that as we read through the Bible, it's not necessarily set in chronological order. So if you want to know where the book of Ruth falls in place, it falls in place at the same time as the time of the Judges. Okay. So we see that this setting, it takes place in the time of the Judges when they ruled. The story starts with an Israelite man named Elimelech. Everyone say Elimelech. It's just fun to say Bible names, I think. Elimelech. And um, he had a wife named Naomi. And the two of them were blessed with two sons, Malon and Kilian. Okay? Not Melon, Malon, okay? Machlon and, and Kilian, okay? And they leave Bethlehem, their hometown in Bethlehem in Judah, and they make their way over to Moab. Now, Moab, if, if you know the map, I wanted to put up a picture, I really did. But if you know where the Dead Sea is, if I am the Dead Sea, Ju Bethlehem and Judah would be on this side of me. And if you look at the map, they'd have to travel across the Dead Sea, and Moab was here on the other side of the Dead Sea. So there was famine in the land for the Israelites in Judah, so they made their way over to Moab where there was still some food. While this family of four is in Moab, Elimelech, he dies in Moab. We don't know how, we don't know when, it just says they go to Moab, Elimelech dies. What happens next? Their sons, Malon and Kilian, they find themselves some Moabite women to marry. It's important that the line goes on, 
right? So Malon marries Ruth, Killian marries Orpah, the Moabite women. And then what happens next? All we know, Malon and Killian die. We don't know how, we don't know why, we don't know when. That's all that it tells us. So the important point of all this is that these three women, Naomi and the two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, they, they have all lost their husbands. So they are all now widows. So the setting of our story is a story of widows in the time of the judges during a famine, okay? The famine is finally over. It says that they were in Moab for about 10 years, okay? They were in Moab for about 10 years. The famine is over, and Naomi hears about this, so she decides, you know what? Let's, the Lord has been good. Let us go back to Bethlehem. And she packs up whatever little she has, and she starts to head out with her daughters-in-law, okay? And these two girls are, are starting to journey with her. She's making preparations. And as they start to travel, Naomi realizes, wow, it's going, to be really, it's going to be a really difficult life for these two young girls. They, they could have such a bright future ahead of them, but if they come with me, they will be foreigners in a different land, and they have no man to protect them, no man to provide for them. Okay, Because in this time, women found their security by being married to another, and it was the job of the man to provide and protect this, this woman. It was a woman's job to bear children to help the generations in that family continue on, okay? So Naomi realizes, oh, I've lived my life, but these two girls have such a future ahead of them. So she starts to urge them, my daughters, you have been so kind to me. You have been so kind to your husbands. You have been so kind to this family. Please just go back home. I urge you, go back home to your mother's house. Find a husband there and marry so that you could have a future. After much crying and tears, it says that the women wept together. And after all that, that weeping, Orpah, she goes home. She follows Naomi's instruction and she goes home to find someone to be married with. That's the last we hear of Orpah. Naomi, on the other hand, maybe a little bit more strong-willed, maybe a little bit stubborn. We don't know why she was so insistent on traveling with Naomi. Personally, I believe it was out of compassion. She didn't want to leave her mother-in-law to go traveling all the way to Bethlehem by herself. You know, someone would take advantage of the old woman. What would happen if she left? Like, I wouldn't feel comfortable letting the woman go, so Ruth took it upon herself, and she chose to stick by Naomi's side. And she goes, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. She has just committed herself to Naomi. She has submitted herself to Naomi. She wants to serve Naomi. I mean, what a beautiful act. And she goes there, a Moabite widow, into the land of Judah. They need to come up with some sort of a plan. So that's chapter one. That's chapter one. There's tragedy, tragedy there's death, there's loss, there's tears, you know, and everything gets left up in the air. We don't know what the future holds for these two women on their journey. 
Good storytelling, eh? Let's look at chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, we've called favor for a foreigner. So we remember that Ruth is a Moabite from the other side of the sea coming over to, to Bethlehem without any husbands to care for them. Ruth tells Naomi her plan. Well, we're going to need to eat. We're going to need some way to sustain ourselves. So let's come up with a plan. And chapter 2 starts with this plan. And Ruth says, listen, I'm going to go to the fields, and it's the harvest time right now. So after all those 10 years of famine, now the the wheat is starting to grow. And she said, I'm going to go to the fields, and I'm going to glean in the fields and get us something to eat. Do you know what glean means? Okay, so you might think, okay, if you need something to eat and there's plenty of food, you're going to run over there and you're going to steal what you can and get it for yourself, right? But this is not what gleaning is, what Ruth decided to do. She didn't have any intention of stealing from the field to take her portion for herself. Once the harvesters had collected their wheat, anything that falls behind them that's left as waste behind, she would glean behind them and pick up the scraps. And she would collect as many of these scraps as possible. Ruth didn't want to break the rules. She didn't want to stir the boat. All she wanted to do was take whatever little could, was left behind for her. Okay, so she went to this one particular field. It just so happened to be that she was in the field of a man named Boaz. So you guys know the story. Boaz. And Boaz was from the clan of Elimelech. All right, does that name sound familiar? Okay, so Boaz was a close relative of the family, okay? So he's from the clan of Elimelech. She goes in there. She's working in the field that belongs to Boaz. And then what happens next is there's this encounter that happens. Boaz shows up at his field, and it says that he notices Ruth. And he starts to ask the people that are working there, hey, who's that? Who's that woman in my field? And he starts to inquire about her. And he learns her backstory. Oh, well, that woman, she's from Moab, and she's a widow, and she's come here with her Israelite mother-in-law, and um, she's taking care of her mother-in-law. And she's been here all day from, from morning. She's just been gleaning behind us. She's not bothering anybody. It's, she seems okay. So Boaz notices her. He asks about her, and then he learns all this about her situation. He was so impressed by the report that he got about this woman that's caring for her mother-in-law, her faithfulness to her mother-in-law. And he approaches her, and he says, Hi there. How you doing? What you up to, you know? Making small talk. I don't know. How do you approach a girl that you like? You know? (laughs) But instead of hitting on her, it says he speaks blessing over her. And he's like, oh, the Lord bless you for your faithfulness and your kindness that you're showing to your mother-in-law. Oh, the Lord has brought you to this place, and he has such blessing over you. The Lord brought you here so you could be under the protection of his wings with his people. Could you imagine? What a line. 
<laughs> he invites her to stay in his fields. He said, listen, don't go to any of the other fields. You could continue staying here in my field and work alongside the other women. And, and behind the harvesters, just stay with the women and pick up behind them, glean in my fields. When he tells her this, we get a picture of he's offering her some sort of protection. If this widow, this single woman, goes into another man's field, who knows how she might be treated or taken advantage of? Who knows what the other workers might do to her? But in Boaz's field, he's in charge. And he tells all his workers, listen, see that girl there? Don't harm her. See that girl there? She's gleaning behind you. Instead of just leaving your scraps, why don't you actually take out some stocks from your bundle and just leave a whole stock behind for her so that you know, she could take more home? And when I hear this, I'm like, wow, not only is Boaz providing protection for her, he wants to provide her need, right? So there's provision that's coming here as well, okay? What an outstanding sort of guy. So after a long day, it said that Ruth stayed there. Ruth stayed there for a, the whole day till the end of the day. And when it came time to eat, guess what happened? Boaz said, Ruth, come here. Why don't you take some of this bread and dip it in the wine vinegar? Fancy stuff. You guys ever go to those restaurants and they have the bread and then there's some oil and balsamic vinegar? And oh, so good, right? Perfect for a date night. That's a fancy place. So I, I see Boaz and he's like, come here, look, I got some bread, got some wine vinegar, check this out. Why don't you taste some, you know? So I don't know, maybe he's wooing her or he's just getting to know her, I don't know. But he's showing kindness to her as well. He doesn't treat her like she's invisible, like she doesn't belong there. And Ruth is wondering in her head, what have I, a Moabite, a foreigner, what have I done to find such favor? You know, you always think when someone's being kind to you, they, they got some other sort of agenda, some ulterior motive. Why are you being nice to me? Why did you hold the door? Wait, you paid for my coffee? Well, you know, and it's like, you don't want to accept the kindness. You know, I, I'm sure Ruth, in her position, why is this man taking such an interest in me? Why is he being so kind to me, a foreigner? He owes me nothing. I'm, I'm just gleaning in his field. And he gave me permission to stay. All that kindness is flooding her, and she's getting overwhelmed. So she goes back home to her mom, well, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And at the end of this chapter, in chapter 2, we see them rejoicing. Ruth returns to tell Naomi that she was working in the field of Boaz. At hearing this, Naomi jumps for joy, saying, that man is a close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers, one of our guardian redeemers. The Lord has been faithful to us. He's still watching over us. And Naomi is so excited. So chapter 2, let's summarize. There's a plan because they had a problem. There's an encounter with Ruth and Boaz. And at the end of it, Naomi and Ruth rejoiced together. Okay? Everybody following so long? So far? Okay, let's continue to chapter 3. Chapter 3 we call Goel, kinsman redeemer. Goel is a Hebrew term for kinsman redeemer. But what is a kinsman redeemer? If you look at your, the right side of your handout in the sidebar, 
It says that kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to various laws of the Pentateuch, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or need. The Hebrew term goel for kinsman redeemer designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems property or person. Okay. I guess in a way for us to understand, it might be something like a, the godfather or godmother of our children or the ninongs and the ninangs. And if anything were to happen to the parents, that the ninong and ninang would step in and help care for that child that's left behind, you know, um, or if ever there's any time of need, that they would be there to offer support and, and pray with the family and encourage them, okay? So this is what the kinsman, this is kind of like what a kinsman redeemer is. There's something in the Israelite history as well that's called um, leveret marriage. A leveret marriage. It's literally a marriage with a brother-in-law. That's what it means, marriage with a brother-in-law. It comes from the Hebrew word levi, which is simply a brother-in-law. So to marry somebody else that would take care of you, the widows left behind, there are many stories in the Bible where there's a woman, loses her husband, goes to the brother. The brother supposed to take care of her, but the brother dies, she moves on to the next brother. And when brothers ran out, there was one story of a woman named Tamar. Do you remember Tamar? She was married, the brother died, went to the next brother, the brother died, went to the next brother, and the dad's like, listen, I don't want you marrying any more of my sons, because I'm seeing a pattern here, okay? And then when it was too far beyond the time, the other brother's out of the picture, Tamar waits until Judah has drank a little bit much, and he's inebriated, and she goes to a town and dresses up like a prostitute to trick her father-in-law, Judah, because it's Judah's responsibility to provide for Tamar a husband that would, what's the word, sire her child. Okay, but Judah didn't do this. So what Tamar did, she was still doing what was right. She went to Judah, but she tricked him, slept with him, and conceived a child. Now, the land that this story is taking place in is where? Bethlehem in Judah. This is a tribe of Judah. So there's a family history of this sort of thing going on already. Okay, in the land of Judah. So this leveret marriage is kind of like what the kinsman redeemer is supposed to do as well, okay? Most of the time, the kinsman redeemer will take over the property of a deceased relative. At this point in time, there may have also been, if you take over the property, you take over the family as well, okay? So let's look at this. Chapter number three begins with a plan again. Here's a plan. This time it's Naomi's plan. First one was Ruth's plan to go gleaning, and this one is Naomi's plan. She says, Ruth, we're almost at the end of the harvest. Remember, the harvest time is about three months. Okay, so for three months, there's been time. Ruth's been able to get to know the way things are working already. And they've been living together. And Naomi says, Ruth, go. Put on your best dress. 
She says, I want you to wash. I want you to anoint yourself with perfume. I want you to get dressed in your very best. And you're going to go down to the threshing floor. Remember, threshing floor. This was no place for the women to be. Okay, this was a place where um, the threshing floor is a place where all the harvest would be put on the ground and you start to winnow it away, all right, with those forks and you toss it up in the air and it separates the wheat and the chaff. So the, the edible parts for your cereal and the rest, that, that's good for nothing. So that's what happens on the threshing floor. And in the Bible, this idea of threshing appears so much, especially in the Old Testament, okay? And in the Old Testament, we read about this, remember, with, um, who was it, Gideon? Where did we find Gideon? In a wine press? What was he doing? Threshing the wheat in the wine press. And through this time of the judges, it's interesting because the threshing floor in the Bible is very symbolic of the judgment. So the setting of this Ruth, go down to that threshing floor. Allow God to judge this, essentially. I want you to go down, dress up, be smelling good, wash yourself, but don't let him know you're there. Wait for Boaz to finish winnowing, separating, doing his job. Let him finish his job, let him eat, let him drink, and then let him rest. But when he lies down, Ruth, you go. You take note of where he lies down. And then when, when he's laying there, you go up to him. And this sounds kind of weird. You go up to him, you uncover his feet, and then you lay beside him. And then he'll tell you what to do. Weird. So Ruth, this Moabite, I'm going to go to the owner of this field. I'm going to go down to the threshing floor. I have no business there. And you want me to approach the owner of this field where in the place I'm not supposed to be, and you, and you want me to do what? Uncover his feet. You want me to, what? And then lie down next to him? Are you? Next to his feet. But then the last part, and he'll tell you what to do. What? Essentially, Ruth is offering herself. She's compromising her integrity, not her integrity, compromising her reputation, possibly. All right, she's going there, she's putting herself at risk. Who knows what the, the field owner might do? What are you doing here, servant woman? Get off me, I just gave you bread. Who knows? But Ruth, it doesn't say that she argued with Naomi, but it, the Bible tells us she did exactly as Naomi instructed her. There's this obedience. There's this attitude of obedience and submission. You know, in her faithfulness to Naomi, I will go where you go, I will follow you, and I will do what you say. And this is exactly what we see in Ruth. So instead of arguing, Ruth goes ahead. And we see the next part of the chapter is another encounter between Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth does everything she says. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night to find Ruth laying at his feet. It's probably dark. Says that he was laying down on top of the harvest. Maybe he was protecting the grain that he just winnowed. Remember, they were just coming out of the famine. 
Why would he be lying there on top of his grain? And he said, Who is there? Who are you? And Ruth responds, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer of our family. Do you know what this is right here? Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are kinsman redeemer of our family. Ruth is proposing. This is probably the first time we've ever heard of a woman proposing to the man. Cover me with your cloak. Take me over. I want to submit to you. Cover over me with your garment. What happens next? Boaz realizes, oh, it's Ruth. He already, remember, there's been time to get to know Ruth. There's been time to watch and see how she's been living. She's been kind and faithful to her mother-in-law. She continued to work in this field, we are told. And she stayed there and worked long days. She had a good work ethic. You know, she wasn't lazy. She never tried to take advantage. And he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Imagine three months. She could have gone off and looked for some other guy working in the field to help take care of her. All right? But we remember that there was that plan of Naomi's all along. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of the town know that you are a woman of noble character. A woman of noble character. If you're familiar with the book of Proverbs, there's a chapter in Proverbs 31, and it speaks of a woman with noble character, speaking of wisdom. There's something here. A woman of noble character on the threshing floor, submitting to the master of that place. And he says, because you are doing this in your faithfulness, in your kindness, because you are a woman of noble character, I will do as you ask. Now, he's not a genie. He's not enslaved. He's a master that has the choice of what to do with this woman, this foreigner in his home. And he says, I will take you on. I will take care of you and do all that you ask. He tells Ruth, listen, stay here the night. It doesn't say that they did anything. It doesn't even imply that they did anything sexually. But he said, stay here over the night. And in the morning, we'll solve all this. We'll sort everything out. Because there is another relative, actually, who is a closer relative to you than I am. And he is the rightful kinsman redeemer. So I'm going to get this sorted out in the morning, he said. But for now, stay here with me, and don't let anybody know that a woman was here in the threshing floor. And when you leave, make sure nobody sees you. There's this thing about hiddenness again. Because there's something valuable there that Boaz wants to protect. He doesn't want Ruth going out there compromising herself so that people can say something against them. They kept that part of their relationship in a way it's sacred. 
They kept it secret because they valued it. He valued it. He didn't want anything to compromise it. And then he said, and then we're going to do everything the right way. We're going to go through all the right steps. So before she leaves, he goes, listen, take that cloak of yours. I'm going to fill it up with six measures of grain because I don't want you going back to your mother-in-law, Naomi, empty-handed. Now this is a big contrast to what happened at the beginning of the story. Remember, Naomi and Ruth, they head off for Bethlehem in Judah. And they're returning there to that place empty-handed. Not sure what's going to happen next. Right? And the contrast with that, toward the ends of this story, he fills up her cloak with enough providing all this grain for her that she could take back to her mother-in-law so she would not return empty-handed. Now you notice, so far, God has only been mentioned once in the entire book of Ruth. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And then, of course, there's blessing that's spoken over her. But there's no real mention of God doing anything in this story. Why is the story in the Bible? Is it just a story? No, it's not just a story. If anything, this is a very important part of our history. And that's why we're studying it today. We're going to find out why very soon. So... They go back home, she brings the grain, and they're rejoicing, and they're waiting in anticipation. And Naomi says, "Let's, you know what, Boaz will not rest until all this is done. So they're waiting with joyful anticipation for all things to be completely set in place before they can enjoy the rest of their life together. Now maybe this is where we are today. As believers in Christ, we're still waiting in anticipation for the time when the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, he's preparing and making a way. He's preparing everything for us so when the right time comes, it, the Bible tells us that he will come again and we will be joined together with him for all eternity. But right now, it's a moment that we should be rejoicing, friends. Not complaining, oh, how long is this going to take? I just want Jesus to come back already. I'm sick and tired of this life. We wait with joyful and hopeful anticipation at the promise that God has given us. Boaz made a promise to Ruth, go home to Naomi, I'm going to take care of all this in the morning. Let's go to chapter 4. The last chapter. Joy and birth. So at the beginning we have death and tragedy. And at the end it sounds like we're coming up to some sort of a happy ending. But before that happy ending comes, remember, there's always some sort of drama. There's always some sort of climax. Okay? And this is the point in the story where Boaz, it says that he goes out into the town. He sees his friend or his, uh, his cousin kinsman redeemer, the closer relative that he spoke of earlier. And he said, listen, buddy, um, so there's some land that's left behind for the deceased Elimelech. And Naomi's in town, and if you know, if you'd like to take over the land, it's yours to buy. You have the right to, to buy that land and, and care for it. 
So the name of Elimelech will continue on. And he said, sure, it's just a small piece of land. I'll, I'll take it. Not a problem. So Boaz, he, he adds in that little bit of information that he left out. By the way, along with the land, you need to acquire, <laughs> acquire, you need to acquire his widow, Ruth. His Moabite widow, Ruth. Something in that obviously gets it well with him. Because the next thing we know, he changes his mind. Right? He doesn't want to compromise the future of his own um, legacy, I guess. Or he doesn't want to compromise the, his land. Because imagine, if he has his own children over here, and he has to take on another wife, if she bears some children, then there would be more drama. You know, like if he passes, then what happens to his land? It needs to be divided amongst this Moabite woman's children and his own children. So he didn't want to compromise the future of his, everything that he's building up right now. So he says, you know what? I'm okay. And he does this weird thing. He takes off his sandal and he gives it to Boaz. Why would you take off your sandal and give it to the guy? He's like, don't worry about it. You know what? I think I'll pass. You could have it. This was done in front of at least 10 elders in the town. Boaz made sure that there were witnesses so that this legal exchange would be validated by witnesses. And when he handed over the sandal, it was a visual representation. This is how it was done all the time. When you hand over the deed of your property to anybody, you would take off your sandal and hand it over to the rightful owner but to give the rights to somebody else. So Boaz said, in front of all these people, I will take the land of Elimelech, the land of Elimelech, the land of Malon, and the land of Kilian, and I will care for that land, and I also will acquire Ruth to be my wife. So they go. They marry. Okay? They go, they marry, she became his wife, and he went into her. That's just a fancy biblical way of saying they had sexual intercourse. They knew each other in that intimate way that only husband and wife should. He went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So at the beginning, we see that Naomi not only lost her husband, she lost two sons. And in the land of Elimelech, Right? Everything that goes along with that, the Limelech's line could not continue. So Boaz, when he comes over, he's continuing that line from the Limelech. Okay? And the woman said, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age, for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been given to Naomi. To Naomi? I thought it was Ruth's baby. And remember, this was restoring what was lost to Naomi. And now the Lord has blessed her with a son through the obedience and the faithfulness of her daughter-in-law, Ruth. 
So they named him Obed. He is a father of Jesse, who is a father of David. So this tells us that Ruth is a great grandmother, I call it the Lola Lola, of King David. All right? And what comes out from the house of David? Jesus Christ came from the house of David. So we just looked into this really cool love story, the coming together of two very faithful and obedient people that lived with great integrity and did things the right way, the way that they ought to be done, to please the Lord and in service and submission to one another. We get this beautiful picture. This is the family of Jesus. I mean, isn't this beautiful? This is happening in the land of Judah. Remember, Jesus, there would be a lion of Judah. There would be, the Messiah would come from this house of Judah. Bethlehem means the house of bread, right? And this is where that grain harvest was happening, the house of bread. Isn't that cool? And you see how all these stories in the Bible start to work together. How they keep pointing back to each other, pointing to history, and then pointing how all of this comes to Jesus Christ. So we just learned a little bit of history, friends. But it's more than history. If you revisit the story and look again in your own time, pray and ask God, God, what are you trying to reveal to me through this story of Ruth and Boaz? A lot of people I know point to the book of Ruth. And they praise Ruth because of her faithfulness and her obedience. But friends, the real star in this story is Boaz. It's Boaz, the unsung hero. If it wasn't for his kindness, if it wasn't for him loving Ruth, if it wasn't for him providing and protecting for her, where would Ruth be today? All right? And Ruth needed to receive him unto herself. And then something is born there. So Ruth is a representation, friends, of all mankind. She was in a dire situation with a lot of uncertainty for the future. All right? She, she was in a place where she had great need. And we see that Boaz comes on the scene and he sees Ruth. He notices her. Okay? He notices her first. And he's interested in her. And then he provides for her. He blesses her. He protects her. He wants to keep her safe. Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz is the one that's revealing the nature of God to all mankind. And although we were foreigners and strangers from God, because we are sinners, when we submit the way that Ruth submitted to Boaz on the threshing floor, think about it. When you come to God, God is, he's not only king, he's also judge, okay? And when we come before God, we need to submit ourselves in the same way that Ruth submitted herself to Boaz on that judgment floor, at the threshing floor. We cannot come before God and come without any sense of judgment. God will reveal to us our very nature. He will reveal to us where we are sinful and where He is filling. 
He wants to empty us of ourselves, and He wants to be the one to fill us with everything that we need. What happened at the beginning of the story? Tragedy and death, so it seems. But God had a bigger plan in that, the death of those husbands. They returned to God empty-handed. Right? We need to come to God empty-handed. And while we're there, we don't boss God around and say, God, I deserve this. You need to give me this. No. We glean from the wisdom of His Word. We glean and we feed on what God is leaving for us now. We don't take matters into our own hands. We don't try and manipulate God to give us more. But God in His goodness and His, His grace and His mercy, oh, how He pours out blessing over us. Ruth didn't ask for the extra stocks. But God pours out more than what she was hoping for. And when Ruth submitted herself to Boaz on the threshing floor, Boaz made sure she did not go back empty-handed. He filled her cloak with all the grain that she would need. In the same way, friends, we could come before God empty-handed. We don't have to prove to Him anything. We don't have to act great before we go to God. We just have to let go of all that life we're trying to build up and realize we have nothing without God. So this story of Ruth, friends, I hope that it inspires you to stop trying to show God that you're worthy of Him. Because guess what? You are not worthy of Him. None of us are. But only because of His great love and His goodness, friends. Oh, He wants, he wants to rejoice with us. He wants you to rejoice with Him and allow Him to fill you with all that you need. Trust Him for all that you need. Rely on Him. He is our provider. He is our protector. He is our Father, our Lord, our friend. Jesus is like our kinsman redeemer, as our brother. Okay? It says in Hebrews that He, he would call us His brothers and His sisters. Our Lord Jesus Christ bought us for Himself out of the curse of sin, out of our destitution. He made us His beloved bride and blessed us for all generations. The big part about this story is that the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy of David. And I believe that's not there by accident. Not just to point out that David was the descendant of Ruth, and Jesus is the descendant of Ruth. But I think these genealogies point to that God is so much about generational living. We cannot consume what God has for us and all that goodness just for ourselves. He wants His goodness to go on and on for generation to generation. So we teach the next generations of who God is. We teach them, teach them of His kindness and His goodness to us. Friends, we need to continue going out and making Jesus known to all the generations. You might think that you're too old to do the work. God's not done with you yet. You say, I have too much white hair. I have no more hair. God's not done with you yet. 
You know, some of the younger guys are like, well, you know, I can't even grow facial hair yet. You know what? You got a bright future ahead of you. No matter where you are, you are alive today because God has a plan for your life. All right? God has a plan for your life, and we need to encounter God every day and meet Him and follow Him and His plan. Yeah? And when we do that with faithfulness and obedience, friends, we can rejoice at the end of every day and know that God's mercies are new every morning. My friends, I pray, I pray, I pray that God will continue to reveal to you His truth day by day. I pray that joy would rise up in you because you know the Lord a little bit more today. And guess what? Tomorrow, you get to know Him a little bit more again. We can spend a whole life getting to know our God. I pray that you would have a joy-filled life, one filled with peace, because we are submitted to our Father, our Provider, our Protector, and our Friend.